calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Blood is Red, volume one of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Blood is Red is also available as an ebook and an unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash blood is red. Hello, junkie. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, so we are doing what all good small businesses do. We're throwing a sale. The Orange and Black Friday sale in honor of the Ionath Krakens. It runs from November 8th, 2023 through November 26, 2023. 15% off anything you can buy directly from us at scottsigler.com slash store when you use the code Orange Friday. That's one word. Now, keep in mind, we have links to books over on Amazon and uh, Audible and other places. If it's just a link, we can't give you the discount for that. It's only stuff that ships from our site. But what stuff we have? We've got a bunch of cool new merch, including GFL team tumblers, a sweet new Kraken's logo insulated copper bottle that is just awesome. Coasters, a new Kraken's hoodie, Kraken's long sleeve tee, PUV James Keeling crew shirts, Keeling mugs and sippy cups for when you're lost in the mud and more. We've also got some new backstock of three autographed hardcovers, Pandemic, Alight, and Ancestor. They are $20 each, minus that 15% off you get with the coupon code, giving you a sweet autographed hardcover for only 17 bones. Not bad, Hamilton. Not bad. That's scottsigler.com slash store and use the code Orange Friday. But we also have the code Black Friday working in case you forget, and it's the same 15% off. In writing news, I am almost finished with the second draft of Warpath. This is the draft that goes to the publisher it will be out by the end of November, and then, my friends, it is on to the final draft of GFL Book 7. Now, speaking of stories with football in them, let's get to today's story number one with a bullet. This one is perfect for football season. It's the tale of a draft prospect who is so good he could set the pro league ablaze. But first, the dudes who spent all the money to hire this kid want to know if he's worth the investment. You're about to hear part one of the story, and after that, I have an author's note in this episode to explain the background of when and why I wrote this tale. It's a big throwback. It's pretty cool. That's it for my jibber-jab. Let's get into story time. Number One with a Bullet by Scott Sigler Cutter peeked around the overflowing dumpster, blinking stinging sweat from his eyes. The buildings blocked the glaring streetlights that dripped thick shadows across the empty alley. 
empty, but not for long. Patterson was out there, waiting, hunting. Cutter ducked his head back behind the dumpster's dark cover. He popped the last magazine out of his Beretta. Three bullets left. He slammed the magazine back in and wiped at the sweat on his face. His jacket sleeve, already soaked through, did little more than spread the moisture around. Even at three in the morning, sweat drained from his every pore. He should have known better than to bring a wool suit to Memphis. He kept the jacket on because it was dark. It covered his blood-drenched white dress shirt. The garbage reeked. He smelled like piss. His lungs burned with needle-like poking pains, and his stomach threatened to heave up dinner. He had to start running again, try and get to the car, get the fuck out of there. If he didn't, he'd go mad. Or die. Likely, both. And all because of football. Lawrence Cutter eagerly stepped off the plane. He hadn't been to Tennessee in years, and never to Memphis. Hopefully, he could take care of this Patterson business quickly and get on with enjoying the city. He worked for NFL Security, a secretive collection of 30-odd ex-CIA and ex-FBI agents who researched NFL players and prospective rookies. Cutter's main job was draft candidate risk analysis. He rarely dealt with established players. Tracking the comings and goings of world-famous athletes was a cakewalk. The media mostly took care of that. Keeping track of the kids was the tough job. Kids who were nobodies before football field fame endeared them to NFL owners and coaches. Who kept tabs on nobodies? These kids came from all walks of life, from Iowa farm boy to East St. Louis gangbanger. Every kid had some off-dirt field clinging to the old spikes. That was Cutter's job. Find the dirt for the edification of NFL franchises. At the height of his FBI career, he'd investigated dangerous people. People with guns. People willing to kill. He'd been shot at three times, never hit, and stabbed in the arm once. That took 27 stitches, made a hell of a scar, which he loved to show off after the fifth or sixth Jim Beam and Coke. Those dangerous days were behind him. These were just kids, after all. Snot-nosed brats born with a gift of football. It never occurred to these kids that ex-FBI agents were researching their collective pasts, examining police reports, team disciplinary actions, wrist slaps by the college. Compared to terrorists, drug ring enforcers, and nutcase assassins, the kids didn't pose much of a threat. The kids were safe, and that was just the way Cutter liked it. Luke Moore waited for him in the terminal. Luke looked closer to fat than skinny, although he was neither. Luke had paid his dues in the CIA's snoop shop. He could find out anything about anybody. He was normally a warm, jovial man, but today he wore a severe look. Hello, Luke, Cutter extended his hand. You look about as happy as a dickless dog. I wish I could be that happy, Luke said, shaking Cutter's hand. Let's go. We can talk in the car. Cutter didn't bother with further small talk. They collected his luggage and headed to Luke's Acura. The new leather seats had cooked in the afternoon sun, filling the car with a rich, hot smell. I found more, Luke said as they drove away from the airport. It's bad. If his ex-girlfriend is telling the truth, Eugene Patterson is the biggest nightmare the NFL has ever seen. 
Cutter sighed. He looked out the window at the beautiful Tennessee weather. Such news made the day hard to enjoy. This wasn't what the league wanted to hear. Not about Eugene Patterson. Every year, NFL security found rather compelling dirt on several players. Drugs, violence, alcoholism, steroids, many things define a candidate as risk. A multi-million dollar risk. Sometimes franchises took a chance and drafted these players anyways. Sometimes the players worked out. More often than not, they proved to be a financial and public relations burden. Those players were simply a waste. In the NFL, a wasted draft pick was far worse than original sin. Every couple of years, such a questionable player turned out to be a projected high first-round pick, an electrifying young talent who could jumpstart any franchise. Eugene Patterson was that and more. Most analysts figured Detroit would take him with the first pick of the draft. It was, as they say, a no-brainer. Cutter could hear the commissioner's voice on draft day. The Detroit Lions select with the first pick of the first round, Eugene Patterson from the University of Memphis. Patterson would mug for the cameras with his perfect smile, his number one jersey, and a Lions cap. Patterson was a beast of a man. Six foot four, 265 pounds, yet impossibly quick with great acceleration and speed. He was a brutal, savage player, and his bone-crushing hits often ended careers. On ESPN SportsCenter, Chris Berman showcased Patterson's vicious hits with the now ubiquitous phrase, And here comes the pitter Patterson of little feet! Boom! Patterson's skills had led the Memphis Tigers to a second-place finish in Conference USA and a top-20 placing in the final AP poll. He was a once-in-a-generation talent. Some coaches even said he was better than Dick Buckus. In addition to a surplus of talent, Patterson had poster boy good looks and graduated U of M with a 3.81 grade point average in criminal law. He was a member of the Baptist Church, a community volunteer, and in general, a very classy young man. Madison Avenue was already slobbering over his appeal. Rumors abounded about deals with McDonald's, Sprite, Ford, and a dozen shoe companies. Patterson had yet to play a down in the pros, and he was already a star. In short, Eugene Patterson was the NFL's prize of the decade. That was, of course, until the call from Coletta Williams, Patterson's ex-girlfriend. She'd read a Sports Illustrated article on NFL security and knew what the group could do to a draft prospect's chances. Via the phone, Williams worked her way through the myriad of NFL's corporate offices until she reached Cutter. She had dirt on Patterson. Big dirt. No, she couldn't mention it over the phone. Someone had to come see her, in Memphis, where Patterson was, where the dirt was. It was probably bullshit, some spurned woman out to hurt Patterson any way she could. That or a gold digger, a private in the army of women who try to leech a buck off of famous athletes. But as a first overall draft choice, Patterson would command around $60 million for a five-year contract. With that kind of investment, the owners wanted to be sure. Sure with a capital S. So, Cutter had sent Luke to check it out. Less than 48 hours after Luke landed in Memphis, he called Cutter. So what is it? Cutter had asked. Did he assault that girl? She pregnant? Drugs? What? It's worse than that. This is some ugly shit. The owners aren't going to like it. Come on, Luke. What is it? Devil worship. Our boy Patterson is some kind of Satanist. 
Luke related Coletta's wild story. It sounded like bullshit. Crazy person bullshit. Even so, Cutter booked the next flight to Memphis. If only half her story was true, it was a bad situation for the NFL. Bad, with a capital B. The NFL would take a chance on players with drug problems, possibly a few convictions, assault charges, just about anything. But a devil worshiper? As they drove, Cutter read through Luke's case file on Patterson. The kid's record was spotless, both in high school and at college. What Luke focused on, however, was Patterson's two high school buddies who also attended U of M, Darius Klein and Andy Jacoby. The pair's alleged acts included hanging a cat from a dormitory stairwell, scrawling occult symbols on dorm walls in cow's blood, sacrificing German shepherds, and digging up graves to do God knows what with the corpses. Jacoby had been convicted of the last. The university quietly expelled him, but he didn't go home. He still lived in an off-campus apartment with Klein. Cutter poured over the file. The surveillance pictures of Jacoby and Klein spoke volumes for the character, unless the shots were from October 31st. Klein was a small fellow, wiry, with thick black hair tied up in a long, snaggly ponytail. Jacoby was tall and a bit chubby. He sported a spiral tattoo on each side of his stubbly head. They both dressed all in black, wore a ton of jewelry, and were pierced enough to date a porcupine. Cutter held up a photo of Jacoby for Luke to see. I bet you wish your daughter would bring him a nice young man like that. Luke ignored the remark. I researched that tattoo. It's a symbol of Baranti, a 6th century Asian demon. Cutter stared at the ugly black tattoo. It looked like a lumpy snake with a bull's head. Any significance between this tattoo and the uh, devil worship thing? Probably. Klein's got the same tattoo on his arm. Whatever happened to I Love Mom? Eugene Patterson's childhood buddies, eh? Now the Lions will just love this. Have you seen him with these upstanding young men? Only once. Patterson seems to know they're bad news. He isn't seen in public with them, but Coletta said he's with them every Thursday evening, so we might catch them tonight. Is she still in Memphis? She is. She's scared shitless. We're going to see her right now. She lives on Poplar Avenue in some student apartments. She waited until graduation. Now she's getting the hell out of Dodge. Uh, I think she's nuts, but I want to hear that bullshit story of hers with my own ears. Take me to her place. Stacks of boxes littered the small apartment, each one sealed tightly with packing tape and clearly labeled a neat black marker on top and all four sides. The stereo appeared to be the last thing to go. Whitney Houston crooned from the MP3 player. Coletta was tall and graceful, with light brown skin and long curly hair tied back in a no-frills ponytail. Her eyes looked bleary and red from lack of sleep. We talked on the phone, Cutter said to Coletta after Luke introduced them. I'm here to listen to your story. You're here to see if I'm nuts or full of shit. I'm neither. Cutter smiled patiently. I'll make this quick. Coletta said. I haven't talked to the cops about this, and I'm not going to. You subpoena me or tell the press, I'll make you look like a fool. You get the picture? Yes, ma'am, Cutter said, still smiling. Good. Now listen, 
I'm telling you this because Patterson is a freak. If this screws up his draft chances, that'll hurt him, and that's good enough for me. She lifted her hair and turned her head. See this scar? Cutter couldn't miss it. He counted at least 20 stitches running from her right temple down below her ear. 25 stitches. That's what that bastard did to me. Why didn't you go to the police? If I went to the police, he'd kill me. Cutter saw she fully believed that. Can you tell me the part about the devil worship? It's not devil worship. We dated for six months when he told me he was this spiritual leader. He wanted me to join him in this church. I was shocked, but I loved him at the time. I went with him to a ceremony. I thought I could get him out of whatever it was. Power, love, and all that, you know? I thought it might be some college kids and a Ouija board. Really, I didn't know what to expect. He went out with Andy and Darius every Thursday night. Just the boys, you know? No girlfriends allowed. Coletta's eyes showed fear, but also fury. She was almost shaking with anger. A proud woman who wasn't about to submit helplessly to some man slapping her around. We went to Andy's house on Watuga Street, just west of the main campus. The house has a huge basement, really dark, a lot of little rooms. It's like a dungeon. There's this fire pit thing in the back of the basement. They had a dog. People chanted some shit I didn't recognize. I thought it was all a big joke on me, but they, they killed that dog with a knife. They used the blood to smear these weird symbols all over the basement. Eugene wasn't just a part of it. He was in charge. He called the shots. There was blood everywhere, but none on him. I was scared shitless. When we got back here, I told him I never wanted to see him again. That's when he did this, did this thing with his hands and he cut me. Thing to his hands? Cutter asked. Luke had told him the story over the phone, but he still wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth. Even crazy people sometimes base their fiction on an ounce of truth. Yeah, his hands changed, morphing like they do in the movies, you know? His hand turned into this gray thing with claws on the end. He cut me. Said if I went to the police, he'd kill me. I know that sounds crazy, but I don't care. It happened. Just go to the house. It's Thursday, and they'll have their weekly little dog-killing party. She glared at Cutter defiantly, almost daring him to call her a liar. Cutter showed no emotion. Miss Williams, one final question, and then we'll leave you alone. I have to ask you flat out, just to make sure I didn't misunderstand. Do Eugene Patterson, Darius Klein, and Andy Jacoby worship the devil together? Her face wrinkled slightly with confusion, only for a second, and then her eyes widened with understanding. No, you don't get it. This has nothing to do with devil worship. Andy and Darius and the others at the ceremony, they don't worship the devil. They worship Eugene. I see why you brought me in, Luke. You did the right thing. Cutter stared out the window at the explosion of spring greenery. Crazy fucking story, eh? Luke said. Yeah, crazy. She talked to anybody else about this? No one I can find. No cops, no press, no lawyers. Far as I know, we're the only ones. Cutter mulled over the situation. If she was a gold digger, why would she throw in that crazy part about Patterson sprouting claws like some kind of movie monster? 
people would listen to her tales of devil worship and assault. That was guaranteed to get her on talk shows, land movie of the week deals, and draw the attention of ambulance-chasing lawyers like flies to shit. But add that claw part, and she went from victim to nutcase in 0.2 seconds. No one listens to a nutcase. Our story is too fucked up, Cutter mumbled to no one. The claw shit, yeah, Luke said. But she may be telling the truth about that dog. Jacoby and Klein have done this before. Cutter nodded. They had to check it out. You couldn't give the NFL hearsay about a player like Patterson. The NFL needed to know. We always treat vindictive ex-girlfriend stories with kid gloves. Especially loony ex-girlfriend stories. Right now, Patterson is clean as far as the league is concerned. We gotta know for sure if he's a Satan worshiper. That kind of shit can destroy a whole franchise. But she said they don't worship Satan. They worship Patterson. Cutter said nothing in reply. That comment bothered him as well. Even if she was out for revenge, why would she say something goofy like that? Goofy, with a capital G. She could have implicated him as a devil worshiper and been done with it. Odd. Bullshit, sure, but still, odd. It was a delightful part of town. Large old houses lined both sides of the street amidst sprawling elm trees that looked heavy and dark in the night. The smell of fresh-cut grass lingered in the heavy air despite the late hour. They drove by Jacoby's house once, then parked four blocks away, well out of sight. Jacoby's place was a huge, three-story affair with ugly fire escape ladders crossing almost every window. Some entrepreneur had divided the once-beautiful old house into niche apartments and packed it with college kids. A steady, thin tendril of smoke drifted out of a narrow pipe on the roof. Cutter and Luke checked their weapons, then quietly moved to the house. Gnarled shrubs grew near the fire escape. They went up the fire escape, carefully entered into the second-floor hallway. Inside, the place was a shithole. Sagging floors, scratched doors, peeling plaster. Graffiti and posters covered the walls. Some of the graffiti looked ominously obscure. Cutter didn't want to think about what medium the artist had used. They carefully walked through the silent house. Naked bulbs illuminated hand-me-down furniture. Unmade mattresses graced the floor of every room. The place smelled of stale beer, cigarettes, and pot. Just as Coletta predicted, the house was empty. Strange sounds faintly filtered up from the basement. The two NFL security agents walked softly down creaking stairs to the first floor. The closed basement door was under the stairs, only a few feet from the house's front entrance. Luke cracked the basement door and peeked in. I don't see anything down there. If we get into any shit, we come up the stairs and go right out the front. The basement runs the length of the house, so it's big. Coletta said they'd be in the back. We should be able to go down without being seen. Let's go then, Cutter said. I'll follow you. Luke descended. Cutter peered through the faint light, watching for potential cover spots every step of the way. They heard a strange sound. Half song, half echo. The cinder block walls were crumbly and faintly damp. Sand gritted on the concrete floor under their shoes. Cobwebs invisible in the dark, tickled at their face and hair. Frames without doors gaped at them every few feet, 
showing the thin blackness of many small rooms. In those rooms, random things that one owner wanted to keep for future use, things that newer owners didn't know about or just left alone out of laziness. Stacks of mildew newspaper, a rusty tricycle, rolls of carpet remnants, a half-empty bag of nitrogen fertilizer tied off with a blackened jump rope. Old, rotting furniture and wet cardboard boxes seemed to cover every inch of the basement. In some places, clutter stacked all the way up to the ceiling. They quietly turned a corner, keeping close to the walls. The strange noise solidified into a distant bastard cousin of some Gregorian chant. Cutter didn't recognize a single word. The sound sent a primal chill up his back, making him instinctively uneasy. They moved toward it. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Author's note for number one with a bullet. Number one first ran in the book Monsters from Memphis, released in 1997 by Beecher Smith. The stories for this compilation had to take place in or around Memphis, hence the title. I had never been to Memphis when I wrote this, but thought if I could center a monster story around the college football team, I might have a shot to break in. By 1997, I'd written several role-playing books and magazine articles, but had yet to land a short story. Number one marked my first sale of pure fiction. The tale earned an honorable mention in Year's Best Fantasy and Horror for 1997. At some point, I'd read a story about NFL security, an actual organization entrusted with performing background checks on draft prospects. Professional football is a high-stakes game. Teams frequently guarantee millions to players who are at the oh-so-wise ages of 20 or 21. If these players wash out after one season, or even if they never play a single down of pro ball, they still get that guaranteed money. Hence, the league will do anything it can to make sure these young men are worth the investment. As soon as I read that story, I wondered what might happen if a background check revealed something truly awful, like devil worship. 
We'd had some incidents in my college with animal sacrifice, various corpses hanging from stairwells, so it was a natural fit for the story. Note, I was not responsible for any such stairwell incidents, just a fire extinguisher or two, and the statute of limitations has run out, so my RA, who's still looking to pin the fire extinguisher problem on me, can go fuck himself. Thank you. You have been listening to Blood is Red, Volume 1 of the Color Collection series of short story anthologies written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author. For more information on Scott, please visit scottsigler.com. Blood is Red was produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Copyright 2023, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is Dead Silence by the composer Vazya Sakal. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.